propaganda as an art, sabotage as a business against a machine. It's like creating free space so people can do their thing. It's challenging authority. You know, if the cops come, the cops come. Welcome to the Pages Against the Machine podcast. I am your host, Amir, and today I have a very special guest, someone that has been a very good friend of mine for a very long time. She is a person of many hats, as you can see. She wears many hats uh, <laughs> behind her. Um, she's honestly one of my favorite people. Uh, her name is Angel Chung Kutno, and she is a organizer, an artist, an educator, among many other things, including... A roller skater. Angel is based in New Orleans, Louisiana. Angel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Dive in with you. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you here. I met Angel probably a decade ago uh, in Southern California, and I have never known anybody to be so active and engaged in her community and finding community and just totally full of life and power. And I recognize her power. She's honestly one of the most inspiring people that I know. I'm grateful to be friends and I'm really excited to dive in and talk with her today about the experience of race. Angel is multiracial. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, Angel? Yeah, definitely. So I grew up here in South Louisiana. Uh, my mother is from South Korea. My dad's from Louisiana. My dad's family goes back five generations here um, since the time we were brought to Louisiana. And because my mother is an immigrant, that makes me first generation. So I grew up with obviously being surrounded by the culture of Louisiana here, um, but hearing Korean spoke in the home and because they always say the mother carries the culture of the home, I had Korean culture around me, Korean food and Korean language. Interesting. So I can imagine that growing up multiracial in the South, um, definitely. And once again, it's one of those things where the South is stereotyped for those of us, uh, for those of you listening in, in, in a very untrue way, a lot of times in the media and the way that the spectacle presents it. Um, I I'm assuming that given your multiracial background in somewhere, you know, in the South, um, you, you've had a lot of unique experiences and you have a very deep understanding of race and the relationship between races and racial politics, um, in your community. Yeah. So honestly, I mean, you know, the other saying is that stereotypes are rooted in some kind of truth. Right. Mm. So I did grow up in the South and typically what I tell people is, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. My family went to a completely white Southern Baptist conservative Republican oh, wow. Southern Baptist church. And we were the only non-white family there. On occasion, we would have other non-white families, but we were, I mean, throughout my entire life, we were the most consistent. So white neighborhood, white church, and then... Um, we spent holidays with my black family, my dad's side of the family. Okay. But other than that, I was in a lot of white communities and even my high school. I went to um, a lot of public schools growing up. And then for high school, I went to a Catholic school, which was 96% white. Wow. 
Yeah. Wow. So <laughs> as as somebody in a 96% white um, school, how did you feel like growing up? Obviously, like when we're growing up and, and we are in that age, um, our psychology, honestly, the foundation of it is, is being created and laid. Um, and I have been diving deep into France Fanon lately and uh, a lot of the theory and stuff on colonization and and how how the forces of racism and colonization and everything shape the individual psycho psychology of the colonized um so that being said did you went as far as a young angel in a school that was you know predominantly white um did you feel as an other were you did you feel included like what what was your experience of that with the other classmates and and the teachers and stuff? Did you your how was your identity um, kind of shaped and stuff in in that period of your life? It's interesting because I think that growing up, I maybe didn't really have the sense or the ability to reflect on um, my circumstances, and so. I didn't feel excluded as a child, but I did realize that I was different. And there were times, honestly, where I just thought maybe if my skin was a little lighter and I already am fairly light skinned, you know, yeah. like I'm kind of in the middle of the, <laughs> the spectrum. But, um, you know, all my friends had straight hair. All my friends were white. And um, of course, I had other classmates, but I was bullied growing up a lot because of my hair and because people oh, didn't really man. know where Korea was. People always assumed my mother was Chinese. And so they'd make yeah. jokes about being Chinese. Yeah. And while I didn't feel like I didn't fit in, I knew that I was still different. And so it's funny because um, when I finally went to college, I went to LSU and it's the same population as my hometown. Okay. <laughs> so 30,000 people. And um, I started getting involved in the Baptist Collegiate Ministry there, which also is a predominantly white space because to me, that's what I grew up in. And so it was kind of a comfort thing. But there was one day someone asked me, do you ever feel out of place or do you ever feel awkward being one of the few black people? And it was like a light bulb went off. And I just realized, <laughs> oh my gosh. I didn't even realize it because I'm so used to being that person that yeah. it didn't feel awkward to me. But from the outside looking in, people maybe thought that I felt that way and I didn't necessarily feel it. But now that I reflect on it and I look back, I realize some of the experiences that I did miss out on because of um, because in a way my safety was ensured because of the silence, right? Yeah. And so by not questioning and by not pushing back, mm -hmm. I made people feel safe and then therefore I was safe. And so because I didn't ask those questions and now I'm asking them as an adult, yeah. I think that there are people in my past who feel that I am um, projecting negatively upon them when really I'm just trying to understand the origin of some of our relationships. Yes. I mean, that first off, the unfortunate truth is that, you know, a lot of BIPOC people that I know have been bullied as kids and stuff, um, particularly, you know, a lot of Asian uh, friends of mine and stuff. My wife is Korean and she's very similar stories about being continually harassed and picked on when she was young and those type of things. So it's a very sad, unfortunate truth because that that 
type of behavior really reinforces when you know you're young and impressionable that you are an other that you don't truly fit in and i can definitely to a degree understand like when i'm hanging out with iranian people oh yeah he's an american you know when i'm hanging out with american people some of them are like oh yeah he's iranian um, I can imagine you experience that a lot where as an American person um, who, yeah, who is not just a straight white person, there's complexity and identity um, and experience of identity because there is somewhat of a separation from the roots, particularly like if, you know, based upon race, like I'm white passing, so it's different. Um, but, you know, my wife who's Korean, when she's in Korea, she's seen as an American but here, because, you know, she presents as an Asian woman, um, everybody, you know, assume, you know, she's Asian. And that alone, I feel like has has a, a psychological impact on the individual where it's, you know, um, I guess that's that's what I'm interested in, in hearing about your perspective on uh, because you are black but you also are very Korean. So your experience, you know, as a black woman and a Korean woman, um, before we kind of dive into that, um, a friend of mine was telling me yesterday about a person named Audrey Lord, and she was a self-described um, mother, warrior, poet, writer. Um, she's basically an all-around badass. She herself, she was a black woman who was a lesbian. She was a feminist and a socialist. Um, I don't know a lot about her. I just got turned on to her yesterday. And I listened to her her read something that she had written that was called There's No Hierarchy of, of Oppression. For wherever oppression manifests itself in this country, black people are potential victims. And it is a standard of right-wing cynicism to encourage members of oppressed groups to act against each other. And so long as we are divided because of our particular identities, we cannot join together in effective political action. Within the lesbian community, I am black. And within the black community, I am a lesbian. Any attack against black people is a lesbian and gay issue because I and thousands of other black women are part of the lesbian community. Any attack against lesbians and gays is a black issue because thousands of lesbians and gay men are black. There is no hierarchy of oppression. The thing that I kind of wanted to talk to you about now, the segue is she says in a black community, she's seen as a lesbian, but in a lesbian community, she's seen as black. So what is your experience like that, you know, when you go to Korea, what is it versus, you know, when you're mm -hmm. hanging out with all of your black relatives and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, it probably wasn't until I was in my 20s where I finally realized I'm fully black and I'm fully Asian and I'm oh, half. Okay. I'm just hold on, all hold on, of hold it on, together. Hold on, hold on. Say that again. That just like that. <laughs> I, I really, really, okay. Okay. Yeah, so I think that my Power identity thoughts. is full. I'm yeah. fully black. I'm fully Fuck Asian. Yes. I'm both at the same time. And regardless of how people see me, it's about who I know I am and who I identify myself as. And so when people look at me, they don't see Asian. Obviously, I'm not... Yeah. You don't look at me and say, okay, obviously you go in this box over here. 
But then people will look at me kind of like, but which box do you go in? <laughs> yeah. And so, um, yeah, when I am with black people, it's so I used to be a teacher and it surprised me a few years ago. One of my black students said to me, you're you're not black. You're not like us. You're different. And didn't see me as black at all. Wow. So not even just like, oh, you're kind of black. This student didn't think that I was whatsoever black. And I had never been told that before. I mean, I've been told, you know, like, oh, you talk this way. You sound this way. You look this way. You're not really this way. What are you? All those other things. But I've never completely been excluded from being black. And so that was kind of interesting. Um, and then when I'm with Koreans, you know, and Co if Koreans don't know that I'm half Korean, then they're kind of confused because <laughs> yeah. I'm in this group called Asians for Justice. But I'm also in another Asian group that um, is made up of older Asian community. And when I show up in those spaces, people who don't know, they're just like, where do you fit in? You know, and yeah, so yeah. it is is a matter of me. Um, not that I feel that I have to explain myself, but it, for me, it's a pride thing, you know, and it's about making sure people understand who I am. And so I guess maybe the closest thing I can relate it to is, um, like telling people your pronouns. For me, it's telling people my identity, you know, mm, because I don't want people to make things up or assume that I am one thing or another. I want to tell them who I am so that I can come into the room with my own definition and explanation without them putting something on me that I don't identify as. <laughs> I mean, the very first thing you said was just kind of paradigm shifting just in my head where the fact that we identify as half of something, you know, instead of embracing our, you know, race or ethnic heritage in its in its entirety, you know, like, what is that? What does that say about how we view these things? You know, this idea that you either you're half white, you're half black or anything like. No, like you can reclaim that and embody that, you know, because that's a big part of, you know, in, in colonization and everything, just the psychology that is instilled in the individual. It's one of those things where, you know bringing up race because it is such a touchy, you know, it's such a touchy topic for white people, you know, to talk about, you know, it, time and time again, like, it's just, uh, <laughs> you see, you see people talking about, you know, Bill Maurer, for example, just popping off the top of my head about like, why do we have to talk about race? Like we solved that racism's over. Like, we don't see race. We should, the liberal ideal was not to see race. And it's just, it's just, it, 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 it shows, it demonstrates a level of ignorance and not necessarily mm -hmm. an ignorance with malice, but an ignorance to, if I don't experience something, then it doesn't exist. Right, so right, for, right. it seems like a lot of people, white people, it's like, oh, okay, so the civil rights stuff happened and now we're all equal. And because, I never ever was in a situation where my appearance or my race dictated the experience that I had with other individuals in a situation or something. Racism's fixed. Like it doesn't exist. And and that's that's a fundamental fallacy. And and part of the biggest problem I feel like society societally that we face now is one where the largest part of the population, you know, 
Caucasians are completely oblivious to the fact that other individuals that are not white have a very, very different experience of living in the United States of America. And racism was never fixed. It was never solved. Like, honestly, a lot has never changed. Most most things have never changed. Um, And so when they, you know, white people love to say like, oh, I don't see race and stuff. It's because you're white. When you're white, you don't see race, you know. But when you're not white, you see race because you see the barriers. You see the way people treat you differently and not necessarily in a terrible, like evil racist way, but you definitely there's subtle differences, if not like very, you know, serious and or possibly racist. And it's just it's just a real fact. Like it's a totally (laughs) <laughs> and that's that is such a huge fundamental obstacle i feel like we need to uh, overcome yeah so a few things that you brought up um the fact that you are referring to it as being other i mean you know in i wrote this poem probably half a decade ago and i have this line where i say i'm still looking for the crayon labeled other you know because every <laughs> other box is named after a color you have white you have black you know yeah I shouldn't say color, but, you know, you have Asian (laughs) and you have Native American, but then you get to the box and sometimes they don't allow you to choose more than one. I was doing this the other day. I was filling out a form, couldn't choose more than one. And so, of course, that just defaults me to other. And so I've always been put in the other box. And, you know, there is a way to find power in that and to kind of redefine what that means for me. But it is it does feel like. I guess growing up, it did feel like a castaway to just be other, yeah. you know, kind of this other thing. We don't really know, but you're over there. You're something else. And the other thing that you talked about is um, people who say that they don't that. Why are we talking about racism? It still doesn't yeah. exist. Right. And so um, sometime last year, I I don't know what possessed me to do this, but I reached out to (laughs) someone that I've known since childhood. Um, We went, we've known each other probably since middle school. And um, we'll talk about this a little later, but he went to a high school where um, they had a racist mascot. And I decided to ask him about it (laughs) (laughs) as a friend because we've known each other for 20 years. And then it kind of, the conversation just spiraled. And when I started to ask questions, like I alluded to earlier, he felt like it was an attack. And so his response was, we never treated you different than any of our white friends. Why are you coming at me like this? You know, we never even, we never saw your color. And somebody said to me recently, um, this proverb, I think it's a proverb that really resonated with me. And it, they said, until you see me, I don't exist. So when people tell me, you know, I don't really see you as black. I don't see you as that. Okay, well, you're not seeing yeah. the fullness of who I am. And so therefore, you're not regarding me as an entire person. You're only seeing what makes you comfortable. And you're not taking in my full identity. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, you know, something that you kind of just said, you know, brought to mind, just a lot of times the white people feel attacked when we talk about race because you know i would assume that a large majority first off once again like 
I think a big problem with talking about racism in the United States is that racism is an all encompassing term that is kind of attributed to everything from lynchings to microaggressions to, and once again, like technically speaking, racism is a system that, you know, is institutionalized. And I feel like because there's there's such a limited voc vocabulary to talk about race and racism and the structure of racism in the United States. And because so many, you know, people confuse racism for the person is being racist. Well, technically, we're all racist because we live under uh, like technically all of the people that benefit from institutionalized racism are racist. It doesn't mean that they're an active bigot out there at a Klan rally or anything. It just means that the system that we have structurally favors one ethnic group or race over others. Um, and, and I, I think because of that, because there's no nuance, because the moment you bring up racism or, you know, start talking about your race, you know, white, probably a majority of white people don't want to be racist like you know their intention is not to hate other races or anything it's just their life's experience is is completely different and oblivious to the very real aspects of existing you know in a society that is racist when you're not part of the dominant culture right. or ethnic because group. the real question to get to the bottom of that is would you be willing to be another race other than white because if mm. the answer is no well, then there's something to that. And you need to ask yourself yeah. why you wouldn't give up being white. And if you can't acknowledge that in truth, well. There is, there was, okay. I, I can't think of her name right now. An amazing experiment, like just such a powerful experiment that was done. I think in the fifties or sixties, um, a woman who was a teacher, she split the class up um with the blue eyes yes. and the brown eyes that's what's called yeah. blue eyes brown eyes um i we gotta we gotta pull up her name do you do you know her name off the i don't know her name blue eyes. but i do know the experiment that yeah know. there's a really good documentary about it. her name is jane elliott for those of you listening to the podcast highly recommend you check it out basically what she did was she split the, to teach the class about racism and, and we're talking like kindergarten kids i believe um she split the kids up based upon their eye color. And I think, you know, obviously it was a predominantly white class. And honestly, I, I don't, it I could have been all white. white. Yeah. I think so. I think it might've been. Cause it was like, I think it was in Iowa somewhere, maybe in the Midwest. I don't know. Um, I could be wrong listeners, but the overall idea was she split all of the white kids up based upon eye color. And then she granted special privileges to those with, you know, blue eyes or brown eyes you know I, I can't remember what and basically let those kids experience you know what the f a fundamental aspect of of racism in how how it disempowers one group while create you know allowing special privileges and stuff for another like it it showed it showed it allowed them to experience hierarchy based upon a physical characteristic um, and totally fabricated and yeah. that's the thing is so she told one of the groups you know if you have brown eyes you're better at math and you get a longer recess oh, and you get wow. lunch first and she even reported that 
the kids who for that day were told that they were better at math were performing better. They felt more confident. And then she flipped it by doing the opposite the next day. So she said, yesterday, you know, blue eyes, you got to do this and that and that. But today you're not as smart. And the brown eyes actually, you know, how did you feel about it? And then all these kids are sharing their feelings. And she says, well, today, brown eyes, you guys get this bonus thing and this and this and that. And just by speaking this into existence, it changed the dynamic of the class and the way that the kids performed and the way that they saw themselves. And so yeah. just day after day, you know, she did it and saw a huge impact. That's amazing. I'm so happy you remembered that aspect of it because like that is one of the most fascinating parts of it that I, I kind of forgot because I haven't seen the documentary in a long time. Um, this woman is a badass. Like literally she has continued this work. I think she's still alive and she's continued this work um, throughout her life. Like, you know, she's the perfect example of of a white person recognizing what racism is, how it works and how to go about dismantling it and and she's dedicated her life to it so like she's a badass um and she's 87 years old You're yeah right. she's still alive. yeah like seriously stop listening to this podcast and pull up <laughs> youtube and and watch look for you know look for the video um if you just search jane elliott's blue eyes brown eyes there is a lot to learn from that I've done a lot of podcasts and something that I've been very much interested in is language and the power of language in, in using it in a way to be heard. One of the fundamental aspects that we struggle with is being heard when we speak. You know, we talk to people, usually we're not listening. Uh, we're thinking of the next thing we're going to say or response or, you know, we're just kind of zoning out. It's a very common thing. So even words themselves are obstacles because we're taking the intangible, we're trying to compress it and label it to something and tell somebody, you know, something, but their interpretations of those words and their experience of being in the world, is going to be fundamentally different. So when we communicate, we're already facing the obstacle of actually being heard in the way that we intend, because we don't know how people are going to interpret things. With white people, when you talk about race, they very often get triggered. And they get offended because they don't want to be told that they're racist and they don't want to, you know, because they don't feel like they are or, you know, that's who they are at their core. And something that I see time and time again, um, and this this totally ties into Jane Elliott, where, you know, you you say you ask a white person, you know, just average, let's say you're just walking around. Topeka, Kansas. <laughs> you're walking around Topeka, you know, and, and you, you go up to some people, some white people, and you're just like, hey, white privilege, you got it? You got any? They're going to probably say no, you know, like they don't understand because maybe they're poor. Maybe they struggled. Like, you know, maybe they came up hard, you know, like they're not going to feel that they have have privilege. But if you use different language, so you're heard and you say, hey, do you feel like there is a disadvantage of being black in society? Chances are, unless, you know, they're like an asshole or an actual bigot and racist, like, you know, they're going to probably say like, yeah, probably, you know, and if they don't say that, um, you could hit them with 
what Jane Elliott did, I saw, uh, I think she did this with an adult group later on because she kind of took this work and, you know, did it throughout her life with different classes and groups of people and stuff. Um, I think I saw, you know, she basically, she, somebody was like, no, you know, minorities aren't disadvantaged, you know, yeah, we got civil rights now, we got all this and that. And like, they were very adamantly like, you know, no, I'm not, I'm not racist. Racism doesn't exist anymore. We fixed that. Like, you know, that type of just hard block, hard wall up. And then she said, if you get pulled over by the police, would you want to be a black person? And the person, you could see the look on their face. They got it then. They were like, no, that's it. There's a barrier when you call out white privilege because those people instantly get defensive. It's human nature to want to defend yourself from attack. And even though it's not an attack, it's interpreted that way because I feel like a lot of white people assume that, you know, you, you are directly attacking them instead of trying to open up a conversation. And once again, like, look at me, I am white passing. Like I am hundred percent white passing. A lot of my family members aren't. I have a, a unique experience, not saying that it's like I'm super pressed or anything at that at all, but it's just I have a little more nuance of an understanding of race because I'm white passing, but family members aren't. I'm Middle Eastern. Um, that being said, Angel, like talking about just interacting with white people and my experiences with hearing them just get angry and triggered. Like what, what has your experiences been with that? Like, have you been able to actually get through possibly to, to, to white people and stuff? And I, you know, I'm saying white people a lot straight up. Like, I, I don't, I don't mean it disparagingly or anything yeah, yeah. like, you know, white listeners or whatever. I'm not like calling you out for being white, but it's just like, like having an open nuanced conversation about this. What has your experience been like that? Do you actually feel heard? You know, how have you been able to get through? Like, I really want to like know about this stuff, you know? So many responses there. <laughs> well, I think I think I've gotten to a point where I realized you can't convince someone to change their mind. And the idea that seems the most true to me is that people will be more persuaded when they have a relationship with someone who's experiencing the oppression you're talking about. 100%. So if someone has someone who identifies in the LGBTQ community in their immediate circle, social circle, then they're more likely to listen and to hear about their oppression, right? If someone has a child who maybe has an interracial relationship, maybe at that point they're willing to listen. So until there's a direct link for most people, I don't think that they're willing to open up. And I I don't think that I can convince anyone to change mm. their mind until there is a relationship. And even at that point, I don't know that I can convince people because I do know some people and I'm not going to call them bigoted, but I'll say yeah. there I know people who are ignorant yeah. and who still will argue with me and say things like, well, you've never been pulled over because you're black, you know, and we'll they say things that like that or something. Oh yeah. 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 So oh, basically yes. <laughs> they, they kind of try and deny stereotypical things that happen to black people that are terrible uh, as happening to you as some way to like 
knocked down that you should care right. about race like, or something? Have wow. you yeah. had that happen to you because of your race? Oh, well, then it must not be because of being black. It must be because that person deserved it for something else, you know, yeah. and they'll try to justify actions that way to me. And so um, I remember. So I'm in the Rotary Club, right? And there's a whole different situation. <laughs> that, yeah, later. I'll, I'll talk about that <laughs> later. But um, I was having a conversation and this was it was like probably August. So uh, maybe September after a lot of the protests had been going on and I wasn't really sure if I was ready to jump back into such a white space yeah, with older white 100%. folks who I know were not speaking out about this. And uh -huh. it had kind of created this awkward tension because I was aware of them not speaking out and they're aware of me waiting for them <laughs> to speak out. Wow. And, um, I was talking to someone and they basically were like one woman was telling me, well, you know, I'm Jewish. And so there's a different kind of oppression I experienced from being yeah. Jewish and mm -hmm. was trying to relate. And I mean, I understood that she was trying to build a bridge and a express, connection there. <laughs> express you know, and solidarity. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And then um, another woman was telling me about her niece who is biracial because her yeah. nephew married a black woman and you know like when i see my niece i don't see her race because she's just little so and so to me yeah. and you know and it's again that thing about like when people are related to these people they think okay well now i have a person and so this is kind of my my in to say well i can't be racist because i have a black person in my family yeah. or you know i i'm not bigoted because I do know someone who's gay. I work, I have a gay coworker, yeah, you know, yeah. and things like that. So it's kind of weird that people can use it as an excuse. And at the same time, I hope that that is a way for them to mm -hmm. build more sympathy because you hear people talk who are in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, sometimes you'll hear them say like, my parents never thought that they would have to understand this, but now because of me, they are more open-minded. And so really that's my hope is just that, we all just become brown and gay and then <laughs> everyone is forced to <laughs> everyone's just forced to fully automated have to understand. Gay space communism. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the only way for yeah, this to I, work out. <laughs> and once again, yeah, okay, like here here I am of a white passing Middle Eastern person talking about I like race. to say white adjacent. Um white adjacent. Um yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean like you know, you brought up a good point where just once again, time and time again, like I don't see race and stuff. It's like, no, you should see race. Mm -hmm. Like race is beautiful. It's powerful. We should love mm -hmm. all races and, and work in mutual solidarity to create true equality um, amongst races. Once again, like I grew up in a place, you're black, you're white, that's it. You know, I hung out with white people. I never really, truly felt like I was white. You know, I grew up in Appalachia, lots of redneck dads and stuff like that. Um, you know, after 9-11, whole other, you know, I experienced aspects of bigotry and, and stuff. Sometimes it's jokes, a lot of sometimes not at all. Um, but nevertheless, it's always been entertaining to me how uncomfortable white people are talking about race. For example, they don't know how to refer to black people. 
Like they sometimes they like I, I watch them try and choose a word like uh there there were an African American or you know I noted I've noticed like at times like maybe in the nineties stuff now like white people didn't know how to refer like they were so uncomfortable to even referring mm. to a person yeah, as yeah. black. Obviously not all white people, but I've ex- I've noticed this a lot in people, and it's one of those things yeah. where it's like no black is beautiful like. <laughs> you yeah, can yeah. refer to a person as black. <laughs> it's not disempowering. The fact that you are uncomfortable with it and think it is, uh-huh. is actually, that's disparaging. That is, that right. mindset has been created, has been, you know, implanted, conditioned into you because of racism. Like mm-hmm. racism as a system affects all of us. It affects our minds, our psychology. Like uh, Franz Fanon, like he was a psychiatrist and I'm I'm starting to dive into his work and, and post-colonialism and everything. And as somebody who's just really into psychology and philosophy and stuff, it's really fascinating because obviously it's not that the white group, you know, the the cultural hegemony, uh, the race that dictates the cultural hegemony of society, they it's not that they are oppressed in any way. But just like the patriarchy totally shapes and brainwashes young men into to certain notions of masculinity or whatever, it, it programs white people to see black people and other races as an other and or different from them. And a lot of people are uncomfortable with that because like maybe in their heart, they don't want to be racist or anything. And, it, and once again, like this cultural hegemony, the programming of our culture that affects white people, black people, it brainwashes us. You know, it's like that, that is one of the biggest challenges that we face overcoming just culture, just the entire relationship that we have with every other individual around us based upon pop culture, which is the spectacle. Like as long as, as you know, the media continually keeps depicting people of certain races in a certain way, we were going to perpetuate that type of thing. And that's why, you know, as creative individuals, if you're, you know, I do some screenwriting for a filmmaker, anything, we, we have to move away from that. Like if you're a creative person, you can be a lot more creative than just using stereotypes and things. There was this woman, uh, she's kind of gross, <laughs> just a pretty gross individual. I think, you know, I heard she was like a Trumper and anti-masker and all this stuff, but she was, she was a new ager type person. in I think Venice or something. And like, you know, I want to do a whole episode about how, weird the whole new age hippie thing just really started in over the past year to fusing with alt-right and QAnon and all that nevertheless this this woman um she i don't know it's even weird to talk about this um a vaginal egg to to like tighten like the pelvic floor and stuff oh, yeah, yeah the yoni eggs you know about it yeah yeah. So this white woman. Oh, the video, the new video. Yeah. yeah. She's Pretty in Venice. Sure. You're more qualified to talk I'm about this. I'm not surprised. <laughs> well, I know about this because of your wife. Yeah. Posting it. Because <laughs> I wouldn't have known about it. I, I'm not great at social media. Yeah. So I probably, it, it would have missed me. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. So Jade Yeggs, eggs, Jade eggs for your yoni. Yeah. Uh, what does our swear jar look like on this show? Like, what what are the off? You can say whatever you color want words. after five minutes because somebody told me if like YouTube 
will like as long as there's not swearing in five minutes, it will like it can promote it and like you know commercialize it or whatever. So we're no way, swearing for the first five minutes. Then. After just that, curious. just get get it out. <laughs> okay. Well, so anyway, these eggs have been around for a while, and um, basically, these two white women, to my understanding, decided that they wanted to. I guess they're starting a company selling these eggs where. <laughs> Um, they decided they needed to promote it using every stereotype and trope that yes. you know about, particularly, I would say almost all Chinese based racism, yeah. but then kind of other general Asian tropes as well. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, like dressing up chopsticks in the hair, um, using the song Kung Fu fighting, One of the, just, uh... <laughs> the Japanese. Oh, uh, yeah. Screens yeah. like that. Yeah. Everything that you can think that is stereotypical, these women had in this promotional video. But then it, you know, of course, this is not the first. They literally. This is not the last time we'll see something like this. But to me, what gets me the most is like, first of all, how many people were in the room when this brainstorm was happening that thought, this is a good idea. No one will be offended by this whatsoever. That's the first <laughs> thing I need to know because that tells you that there's a lack of representation in I the know. room. Because if there's not one voice yeah. that could speak out and say, you know, like yeah. maybe this doesn't feel culturally sensitive or appropriate, yeah. then you need to look at your table and figure out why. And there, you're missing and there, that voice. there was, if I remember correctly, an Asian woman represented and a black woman represented. And it's one of those things where it's like, I wonder if they knew it was wrong, but they needed the gig, they needed the paycheck. So they had to, you know, and that's part of how capitalism reinforces racism. It's like, Mm -hmm. I've been in places where the bosses call me sand N word. And I'm just like, I I need this tour. Like I gotta, I'm Mm -hmm. on this tour. Like, what am I going to do? You know, I'm going to ruin my career. If I, I don't even know where to go, you know? So it's like, who knows what their experience was? Maybe, maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Maybe they're like, this is fucked up. But like, I need this paycheck. Like, this is a gig. I'm trying right. to make it as an actor. Um, and I just, I, I love that you said that because when I watched it, I was just like, really? 2021? Like, nobody. Right. This is LA. Where have y'all Literally been? no one, <laughs> no one in LA that was part of this production was like, yeah, this is, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe tone down the racism that was the most mind-blowing part to me (laughs) yes that and so and especially what you're saying about how sometimes i've used this example how black and brown people we do have to go along with things because we don't have an option not to and whether that means if we speak out we are unsafe or it means that we're out of an opportunity or we're isolated or we get blacklisted you know whatever that means for some reason we do go along with these things because it ensures some kind of because there's security in it yeah and we don't have the power to not go along with certain things yeah. And that's an issue too. Oh, I just want to I want to reiterate the very first piece of that was sometimes as a non-white person, you have to just go along with something that is wrong, racist, bigoted, oppressing you because you have no other choice. Because the alternative is to screw stuff up for yourself, whether it's a job, whether it's a friend circle, whether it's safety, like and that physical emotional very, safety 
very serious and very real situation where, I mean, there's even white people listening to this, you know, they, they probably have some racist ass uncles or the uncle always gets, you know, or grandparents or whatever. And I, you know, I can imagine that this is a very common thing for even white people to experience, not the oppression, but just mm. the, somebody is doing something that is saying or doing something that is racist and wrong, but it would make the situation very uncomfortable if I stood up or I tried to do anything or it might create friction or something. And it's like, now imagine not only that, but then that same thing actually oppressing you, you know, like you aren't necessarily, you know, just a person that's uncomfortable because you disagree with them. Rather that sentiment is a direct threat to your existence. Mm -hmm. Um, but that video, <laughs> I just I, I was in shock. I, was I can't in believe shock. they're from Venice. I, I but know. Also, I can. I mean, <laughs> that makes sense. I know. I you know, as somebody who was one time, you know, super traveler kid, hippie, rainbowed out, like new agey and stuff. Like I've been very, very disappointed to see, to see what, what a lot of that not necessarily it has turned into, but how that opens doors in the minds of individuals to go down hallways that lead to very dark and wrong, problematic, far-right places and things. Um, I mean, literally that video, it's one of those things where it's like, don't watch the video because it's fucking fucked up and wrong and it's only going to give boost her company with the algorithms and everything. But they literally say... I mean, like, it's even weird for me to say this, but like, they have a line in there where it's like, you don't need a funky Thai vagina. And I'm just like, mm. that is not only are you reappropriating all of this, all of this imagery that has nothing to do with your thing, but that, like, that is a fucking mm. racist, that, like, you're literally saying something really mean about Thai people. Like, I just, it blew my mind how that how that got made and how that just was okay i mean it's not okay but how the people that made it were just like oh yeah this is a great thing a that i'm making yeah the exactly team. it's just like if i was the thai person right now and i mean you know i would be very hurt by that and you know it's it just ties into just the uh, like i guess people are that oblivious you know i guess it just the only answer that i could see or the only way I can interpret it is that there are really white people. They're that oblivious <laughs> to it. And the, the whole thing about the, you know, the egg and all this, like it ties in once again, it reinforces these stereotypes of the exotic, exotic, um, exotization. I don't know if it's the word, of, of Asian women and this whole like you know this mystical mysticism shit that you know is a racial trope of like yeah a Chinese healer or acupuncturist or something and just the hypersexualization and what the fuck does kung fu have to do with the yoni absolutely nothing like taking the word kung fu and reapplying yeah. it to something that I mean just the whole thing is just like what the fuck. Yes, I'm just I'm so tired of the appropriation of 
things by white women and pretending like they invented it. And the one that <laughs> really, really got me was the silk, the hair wraps. Okay, so you probably you might not know yeah, about this, know. but like black women have been wrapping their hair in silk and satin for decades. Okay. Yeah. Protect your hair at night. And then this woman comes out, white woman comes out with a head wrap and then is selling it for like a hundred dollars when you could go to the hair supply store around the corner and get it for five. <laughs> and she's selling it for a hundred dollars because it is all gourmet hair wrap and yeah. acting like she invented this. And one of my white friends a few months ago said to me, oh my gosh, I just learned about wrapping my hair. And I, I just, <laughs> I, I couldn't even say anything. I was just like, this is not the time. <laughs> we're, we're having a good time. We're at a party. I'm just not ready to dive into this conversation. But white women did not invent this. Stop <laughs> taking credit, white women. Y'all got to leave that shit in 2020. Actually, y'all needed to leave that shit generations ago. But please do not bring that into 2021. Okay. okay, like, what is your experience? Like, how do you feel? Like, how do you interpret? I guess, how do you interpret that? Like, when that happens to you, when an individual comes up to you and tries to express something that is like, hey, like, I see you, like, solidarity, but they go about the totally fucking wrong, weird way. Um, like, what does that feel like? Like, what is your experience with that type of stuff? That's a tough one. I mean, it's a conversation that I'm actually having now because I am going into this new creative business venture. And so I'm working with someone who is Ghanaian and she works with African print fabrics. And so she's been making face masks and I've been beating them. We've been doing this for a total of three weeks. I mean, we're totally new at this. Yeah. And a white friend of mine came up to us yesterday while we were at a market and just said, you know, I don't know if I feel comfortable wearing African print because I don't want people to think a certain thing about me appropriating uh, because I want to respect the culture and I'm white. And white so girl? we talked about it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. So my white friend was saying that. And I understand that there is that sentiment. And then yeah. my, the Ghanaian woman, my business partner, she was saying, you know what, if it doesn't matter. Like if you're paying me and you're supporting me, it doesn't matter because if I'm teaching you about my culture and you yeah. understand it, then it's fine. And so then I was saying, well, I guess that w the onus is on the person who is purchasing the item. So if you are someone who is taking or purchasing or supporting another culture, I think the onus is on you to have the responsibility to understand the cultural significance of what you're wearing. So whether that means understanding where the fabric came from or who made it, or if you're wearing something that is tied religiously to another culture, you have to understand the history and the yeah. context before taking something from someone else. And also always give credit, you know, yeah. and acknowledgement. Don't pretend like you made the shit up. What, what, is, what is the venture called? The new one? Yeah. Maddie yeah. and Fox. Matty with two T's. Matty and Fox. Matty and Fox. Right on. Angel Chunkutno, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can people find you at? You can find me online at magic with a K, Fox, M-A-G-I-K-F-O-X. Thank you.